Christmas is over. Is that an amen or a boo? <laughs> I'm exhausted. Um, if you are just wondering what this is, this is Church at Bergen. Uh, just newsflash, I am not Mike Reed, even though we are the same height uh, and have a beard as well. Uh, I am just simply on the board of this church, and I'm in the process of becoming an elder with a couple of other guys. Uh, and I'm just filling in for Mike a couple of weeks, give him a rest. Uh, so we're a church, and we come together every Sunday uh, to worship Jesus Christ. Uh, and we do that three main ways. Number one, we do that through singing songs that are centered on him like you just heard. Uh, also, we do that by giving. There's a tiny little black box in the back. Um, thank you for your generosity so far. It's really helped this church kind of come where we are now. Uh, and last but not least, we, we worship Jesus uh, by preaching the word of God uh, and ultimately having that word of God center upon Jesus Christ uh, so that our hearts can see him, worship him, and enjoy him and bring glory to him alone. Um, so, um, here's how I'll start. I'm just going to start with a, with a short prayer, because uh, I got in on my flight last night. My wife and I got in our beds last night at 1.30 in the morning from a flight, so I'm a little tired. I'm going to need God's help today. So if you guys wouldn't mind just uh, shutting your eyes, uh, and I'll pray just very quickly. Father God, we, we are so humbled by your humility in Christmas, Lord, that you, you, you are not an arrogant God, but you are a humble, serving God. You are unlike any other God. You came to this earth to serve us and humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross for us and came out triumphant so that we could look to you and live. Uh, Holy Spirit, um, I really need your help today. Because if you don't move in people's hearts, um, your word will not bear fruit. So I need your Holy Spirit to come, Lord, uh, to work in our hearts today to hear uh, what you would have us to hear, Lord. And we pray these in Jesus' awesome and mighty name. Amen. 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 Okay. Uh, it was the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who was a mid-20th century preacher, Welsh preacher, uh, who once said that... Uh, anytime you're preaching, it's wise to preach on what might be on the majority of people's minds. And so, therefore, uh, for the next two weeks, I'm going to be preaching a mini-series on change, right? So it's the new year, uh, fresh year's coming up, so everyone's thinking about how can I do things differently now? Um, and even if you're not thinking that, even if you're not thinking about change, I wonder if you are satisfied with where you are personally at right now. Are you different than you were last year? And I'm not talking about a superficial difference. I'm talking about a deep, inner, heart change difference. Are you different than you were last year? So, therefore... Uh, I've entitled this series, How the Gospel Changes Us, so that when we come into this new year, we are fixing our eyes upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and letting that take us off into this next year, okay? Uh, and so we're going to look at two passages of Scripture, one this week and one next week, that are centered around this really interesting word, uh, called, it's, it's the word transformation, okay, word transformation. So if you guys wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through two. 
It's a pretty, it's a pretty popular verse. You guys have heard it before. Uh, personally, I think the youth ministry has hijacked this verse because uh, it, it, it generally goes like this, you know, stop doing bad stuff, stop conforming to the world and start living like Jesus. Uh, so, uh, so I hope the Holy Spirit really comes today and gives us hearts that see this in a new and glorious light. So I'm going to read the passage of scripture for us today that we're going to look at. It'll be up on the screen here for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this passage of scripture is... um, the main point is worship, but it also talks about transformation and how that relates to us offering our lives to God in worship. Okay, so as we look at this together, I think there are a few things that we can notice. Number one, we can notice the call to worship. Two, the means to worship. And three, the purpose of it all. Call to worship, means to worship, and the purpose of it all. Call means purpose. Okay, so first, let's look at the call to worship. Look what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This phrase, I appeal to you, is an urgent, pleading, calling for Christians. And we know that he's talking to Christians because it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Anytime that word comes up in the Bible, it's talking about spiritual brothers and, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's urging them, pleading with them to stand up and offer their lives to worship. And we know he's calling them to worship because if you look at the end of verse 1, It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, comma, here it is, ready, which is your spiritual worship. So you can put it this way. I am pleading with you Christians, worship by giving your entire life to God. Don't compartmentalize your life. Don't, Don't make church life work life. All of life worship. He's calling them to, he's pleading with them to do this. And he's doing this based upon the mercies of God. This is not a religious, moralistic pleading. He's not saying, you better offer your lives to God or else God's going to get you. And we know that because he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Quick little Bible study lesson. Anytime you see the word therefore, look to, what, look to see what it is there. For, right? It's, it's, it's a helpful little thing. So anytime we use the word therefore, we're stating a conclusion, an implication. Okay, so, so Paul is pleading with people out of something he just said, a big, huge, massive truth. So we would have to say, we'd have to go look back into the other verses before it to find out where, why, is he, why is he pleading with these people to worship, but good news is we don't have to because he gives us a short summary of what it is that he's making this conclusion from. Look at the verse again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Because God has been merciful to you, primarily in Jesus Christ, I'm pleading with you, offer your lives to him. This idea of the mercy of God is God's compassionate love towards people who are spiritually helpless. 
You guys have heard of the phrase, being spiritually poor. You have nothing, spiritually speaking. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who realizes, I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to bring to him. No record, no performance, no nothing. Not at all. I can't bring anything to him. And even if I try to bring something to him, that is simply me being a religious person trying to control him to make him do something for me. People who recognize that they are spiritually, they, they have absolutely nothing. They are spiritually desolate. And the mercy of God is his inclination towards people like that. Therefore, offer your entire lives to him in worship. Because mercy demands worship. Praise, we know this, right? Whenever someone shows you mercy, the right response is, thank you. I praise you. What can I do in response to you for this great merciful act that you have shown me? The thing is, though, the mercy of God the magnitude of God's mercy demands a massive response. Your entire life. This scares a lot of people. My whole life? Everything? Even this over here? This prevents many people from coming to Jesus Christ. If he... Because the mercy of God is not cheap. What did it cost? His son. Death on a cross. If that's what it cost him to show me mercy, then there is absolutely nothing that he couldn't demand from me. If he gave his entire life to me, he can demand my entire life even to the point of death because he gave his life for me. This, this fact of Christianity is very scary to some people. It, it creates... One foot in, one foot out Christians. They're like, well, I'll, kinda, I'll be kind of in, but not really out. Because if he really gave his life for me, that means i got to give everything. But I don't want to give everything to him. I just want to give him a little bit. It creates half-hearted, half-committed, one foot in, one foot out Christians. It also prevents many skeptics from actually coming to Jesus Christ and trusting in him. They realize if that's true, if that's true, if he gave his life for me, then I have to give up all of this. Paul the Apostle says, whatever gain I had, I consider as loss for the sake, for the passing worth of knowing Christ. And so what skeptics will do is that will freak them out, and they will go Google a, an objection to Christianity and use that as a smokescreen and say, that's why I don't believe in Jesus, when really... I think deep down in your heart, this is why. Because if this is true, he can demand your whole life. But being shown mercy is a beautiful thing. Why would you hold back? No wonder Paul is pleading with Christians, even you could say pleading with people who don't believe in Jesus. Give your life to him because mercy is sweet. Mercy is sweet. And I wonder if some of you are wondering, it sounds like the Bible's just calling me to be a religious fanatic, a religious fundamentalist. I want to read you a quote. If this is what you're thinking, this sounds like the Bible's telling me to be a religious fanatic. There's a quote by David Foster Wallace, who is, who is an atheist, who was, he's no longer living. He was a famous essayist and writer. 
uh, novelist. And he gave this famous commencement address in, in, in the year 2005 to Kenyon College. And here's what he wrote. This is an atheist, by the way. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Excuse me. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Why am I quoting this? Because no one gets off of this. Everyone is already doing what Paul is urging them to do. The problem is that most of us who are not Christians, we don't offer our lives to God, we offer our lives to something else. And it's eating you alive. It's killing you. But look what offering your life in worship to God does. Look at the verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It doesn't kill you. It gives life. It doesn't eat you alive. It gives you life. It also says you are holy and acceptable. Holy means that you are pure. It removes blemishes from your life. It doesn't corrupt you. And it makes you acceptable. Something about this acceptability thing. We're all trying to justify ourselves to justify why we exist. We're all looking for that universal declaration, this is why I'm alive. I am good enough. And offering your life to God, you receive that declaration, not by your own performance, but by the performance of God. Romans 8 says, it is God who justifies you. That's good news. But how does this take place? How do we get to the point where we can actually let go of something else and offer our lives entirely in worship? And that leads us to the second point. So first, the call to worship. He's urgently pleading with them to offer your lives in worship to God. Now, let's look at the means to worship. How does this take place? Second, verse half, excuse me, first half of verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, so first he states what cannot happen, the negative, in order for you to offer your life and worship to God. And then he states it in the positive, what needs to happen in order for you to offer your life completely to God. So let's look at the negative and then we'll spend much more time in the positive. What cannot happen? You cannot conform to this world. Simply put, when you jettison push aside the offering of your life to God, you will necessarily do it to something else. It's human nature. And here's the weird thing. You eventually, your life becomes wrapped up in that thing. You conform to it. Your life begins to take on a resemblance of that thing that you're offering your life to. 
I think we know this, right? What, what do you think about most? What do you talk about most? What do you research the most? What do you look up the most? What do you spend most of your time doing? We know this, but I just wanted real quick just come up with a few examples of what each of us individually might be conforming to something in this world. Men might be conforming to power, influence, your work, money, a comfortable lifestyle. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just some things that I want us to examine to see maybe if this is the case for us. Women, perfection, especially in comparison to other women. Performance, excuse me, motherhood, an ideal lifestyle, and sexual allure, your body image, young men, feeling acceptable, being liked, being approved, your performance, how well you're able to do something, feeling significant, sexual pleasure, young women, the affection of another man, approval from others, social media. I think we know this. I don't have to spend a lot of time on this. We know that we naturally offer our lives to something and we begin, our lives begin to become wrapped up in that. So, you guys, okay. You guys know those pinpoint impression toys? All the needles? Yes? And you can push your hand through them, okay? If you were to take that and put your, it, pretend that you're the needle thing, the toy. If you were to push your life onto something, what would, what would come through? What would that image look like? What, what consumes your thought life? What consumes your talk life? Chances are you might be conforming to this, and it's preventing from you from fully offering your life to God and finding true worship and joy. Conformity is the complete opposite of change. I found this, this may sound strange, I found this really interesting quote by John F. Kennedy, uh, who said, <laughs> Conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of change. It's pretty interesting. Why do I quote guys? Because you don't have to be a Christian to know these things. These things are true. Even non-Christians know them. So Christian, could this possibly be, excuse me, could this possibly be the reason why you are not able to free yourself and fully give your life to God and find true life? Because you are finding the allurement of something in this world to wrap your life into. And let me just speak to you skeptics. If you're not, if you, deep down in your heart, you think you're not a Christian. Is it possible that you are simply blind to the fact that you're conforming to something and this thing that you're conforming to besides offering your life to God is actually killing you? As David Foster Wallace, the atheist said, is eating you alive, whether you believe it or not. Is this true of you? So we see this and we know this. But, okay, enough of, enough of the negativity. Let's, let's get some positive stuff. Okay, so, okay, great. How, then how do we get free from this conformity thing and then be free to offer our lives completely to God? So Paul states, he states it in the negative, do not be conformed to this world. That cannot happen if you want to offer your life completely to God. Okay, so what needs to happen? 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because something outside of you needs to reorient your heart. Because here's the problem. You love what you love. You offer your lives to something and you love doing it and, it, and it's, it's, you're finding real meaning and significance there. How can you simply just force yourself from loving that thing and conforming to it? How can you just, you can't just force yourself to do it. Something outside of you has to come and reorient you. And that brings us to this word transformed. This is going to be really, you know what that Greek word is? Close. Metamorpho, metamorphosis. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. To, it means to completely change into another form. God must himself reorient your heart off of this thing you're conforming to and onto himself. There's this interesting story about St. Augustine, who, who, and the story about him really illustrates this point that I'm trying to get, up, get across uh, he was a bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the 4th century. And he before, he, before he professed faith in Jesus Christ, he was a pornographer. In those days, that just meant you, you slept around with so many women. You just slept with woman after woman after woman. He was a womanizer, and he was addicted to it. He was conforming to it. And he encountered Jesus Christ, and he, he gave his life to Christ. And there's a story, but he's walking down the road, and he, he comes across a former mistress of his. And he completely, he freaks out, turns the other way, and starts walking the other way swiftly. And, and his former mistress calls out, Augustine, it is I. Because she's surprised to see that she, he turns away. And without even turning around, he says, yes, but it is not I. He, he had been complete. This, is not, this idea of transformation is not a cleaned up version of you. It's new. It's just something completely different. He didn't say, I'm sorry, I know I, I do, but I'm just trying to clean up my life. I'm trying to do things differently now. He's like, no, it's not me. I have no, I have no idea who that old man was. This is what this idea of transformation is. Okay. How does this happen, though? And just, just to help you guys out with listening, this is the main point of the sermon. I'm about to get into the main, the climax of the sermon. Okay? Just to help you. How does this happen? How do we experience transformation? It says it. By, be transformed, by the renewal of your mind. That's a strange phrase. So three questions. What does that mean? What does it mean to have our minds renewed? Why do we need our minds renewed? And why does a renewed mind result in transformation? <clears throat> you see that? What does it mean? Why do we need our minds renewed? <clears throat> and why does a renewed mind result in transformation? Because that's what it says. So, <clears throat> very quickly, what does it mean? This word for renewal, this is very interesting, is the first time this Greek word comes up in Greek literature in the history of, of the language. It's the first time it ever comes up. Paul literally made up a new word. And it just means to be, it's, to be a, it's a higher form of development. So your mind needs to be taken through a higher form of development. It's not talking about being smarter. You just think differently. You see things differently now. 
And in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it talks about the Holy Spirit of God is the, is the person that does this to your mind. So just for clarity's sake, so in order to experience transformation, the Holy Spirit of God needs to take my mind through a higher form of development in order for me to be transformed. Okay. Why, though? Why? I'll let the Bible speak to this. Because in Romans 1, Romans 1, it talks about how we refuse to acknowledge and give thanks and honor God, even though he's clearly revealed himself to us in everything that he's made. Romans 8 talks about how the Holy, a mind apart from the Holy Spirit of God is hostile to him. It's resistant to him. It is against him. And last but not least, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says the natural person, which is simply the person without the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why do we need our minds renewed? Because they are broken, and they do not, for some reason, think God is worthy to be submitted to and seen and enjoyed. Our minds are naturally resistant to him, which is why the Holy Spirit of God must take our minds to a completely higher form of development so we can see something differently. Let's get to the, to the really good stuff. Why does a Holy Spirit renewed mind result in transformation? Why? Because we can finally see understand and experience something truly beautiful, not with the physical eyes of our mind, of our head, but the eyes of our hearts and mind. We can finally understand and see something truly beautiful. What is that? What is this beautiful thing that we see? The key is in the word transformation. It comes up three times in the entire New Testament. One, here. Two, in 2 Corinthians 3, which we'll look at next week. And then in the Gospels, one time, Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on the top of the mountain and it says that he transformed. The Greek word is he metamorpho, so that his, fa his face shone like the sun and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And for some reason, I forget which gospel it is, it says that the, the, the greatest launderer in the world could make white clothes whiter. I don't know why they felt necessary. God obviously thought it was. So, but here's my problem. I believe in Jesus, and I've never seen that. It's because we see something different. With a renewed mind, we see something different. We see a man on a cross. We see, as Isaiah 53 says, that this man on a cross had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And only with a renewed mind can you see that this man upon a cross, Jesus Christ, was no mere man, but was God himself dying in our place. And it was our sin that held him there. And he was dying in our place out of intense Love. And with a renewed mind, we can understand this, and for some reason, that transforms us. Brothers and sisters, I, I think you want this to be true. 
Christian or not, you want this to be true. Let me say it to you this way. <clears throat> you know the great story, Beauty and the Beast? Okay, it's about this story, this, this ugly monster who's put under a curse. He's got to find true love. <clears throat> Stumbles across a woman named Belle. At first, Belle rejects him, is repulsed by him. But as the story goes on, her heart starts to warm towards him and starts to change towards him. And towards the end of the story, he's, he's dying. And he's not, not going to find true love. It looks like this story's going to be over. And she finally gets to him, and she's weeping, and she confesses her, her love for him. And in the, the old story, she's crying, and the tear falls and you know, hits the beast. And it says that he transforms into the, whole, in the, into the, into the handsome prince. And the prince then informs her that long ago, many years ago, he was put under a curse. And the only way to be transformed back into something beautiful, he had to find true love despite his ugliness. They get married and live happily ever after, right? Do you think it is mere coincidence that that is one of the most famous stories of all time? Even if you're a macho man, you still, you still watch the Disney movie and you say, that's kind of cool. Come on, okay? Matt, I know you're huge, you're, you're buff, but you, you know, your heart warms to it. <clears throat> Why do you think this is? Because we know it's true. You know it's true. The story ignites something deep down in your heart that you know has to be true. When you, see, when you hear the story, you don't put yourself in Belle's shoes. You don't say, yes, I want to marry a disgusting beast. <laughs> we see ourselves in the beast because the beast is us outwardly, what we are inwardly. He is outwardly what we are inwardly. And I think deep down in every one of our hearts, we want someone to unconditionally love us despite the darkness in our hearts. We want our hearts, because no, I know that we, we, we like to hide what's really inside there, but I think, I mean, how good does it come to just say, this is who I am. This is my darkness, and someone to go, you are loved. How freeing is that? You ever tasted it just a little bit when you confess a sin, you confess someone to something and they forgive you? How freeing that is? You are tasting something more dramatic. Here's the good news. God does not love that which is beautiful. Rather, his love transforms the ugly into the likeness of the beauty of Christ. You want to know something even crazier? He doesn't just say, hey, I see that you're really ugly inside, but I still love you. In the cross of Jesus Christ, he actually became that for me. Jesus Christ was the one who was perfect in beauty. Yet on the cross, he took my darkness, my beastliness upon himself. And not only were humans ugh, doing this, God himself did that. His own father did that. So now that I, when I trust in him, I can be transformed into something beautiful in the eyes of God.
Don't you want this? Only with a renewed mind by the Holy Spirit can you see and understand that this man upon a cross was no mere man. Christ on the cross with a renewed mind no longer becomes a myth about some vague general love, but it becomes the fact, capital F, of God's intense substitutionary love for an ugly sinner like me. Question, how could that not transform you? How does that not, the question is not, how does that transform, the question is, how does that not transform you? And only with, with a renewed, excuse me, with a renewed mind can we see this. And just so you can see it all together, the Holy Spirit renews our mind to see this unbelievable love for us on a cross. When I see that, I'm transformed. And when I'm transformed, I can then let go of these things that I'm conforming to and offer my life freely to God in worship. That's how it all fits together. This is a beautiful thing. It's a moment of conversion. It's a moment when someone becomes a Christian. And as we're going to see next week, it's, it's, it's also a process. We're being transformed too. But what's the, what's the purpose of this day-to-day? What, is, what does this look like practically day-to-day? And that leads us to the last point. Let's land the plane. The purpose of it all. So the call to worship, the means to worship, the purpose of it all. The very last part of the verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That... Here's the purpose. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The purpose of all this day to day is that now with a renewed mind, after we see the substitutionary love of Jesus Christ, we then can then freely walk into his will. We say, How, okay, Lord, I, I yes. That's an, your love is amazing. Now, how can I offer my life in worship to you? So you throw yourself into a body of believers, you open your Bible, and you, you tap yourself into the wisdom of God. And with a renewed mind, we see that will. We see what he wants for us in our work, in our families, in our entire lives. And we see, I will walk in that. And you can begin to truly flourish as a human, human being. Real human flourishing does not happen by submitting your life to the expectations of your family and society nor does it happen by submitting your expectations to your own individualistic ideals, but rather by submitting yourself to the wisdom of the Lord found in the Bible, found in Scripture. And only with a renewed mind can we actually walk in this. So I want to encourage you guys today, present your entire bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And I'll close with the great hymn, O soul, Are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at this Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we praise you for your mercy, for your love, and that you are worthy of all of life worship. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit 
might have renewed some minds today so that they could see what Christ has done for them. And they could be freed from conforming to this world and to begin to be transformed by looking into the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen. Amen.